Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is Paul. I hope you're having a great day. My guest this week is Julio Vincent Gambuto, who is the author of a new book called Please Unsubscribe, Thanks, How to Take Back Our Time, Attention, and Purpose in a World Designed to Bury Us in Bullshit. I found out about this book when I was on Facebook and I asked my followers and my connections, people I know, my friends, for book recommendations because I was in between books and was looking for something new to read. And mine and Julio's mutual friend, Ethan Hershenfeld, said, you should read the new book by my friend Julio. Please unsubscribe, thanks. And I read the title and the subtitle, and I was like, that sounds like somebody I should talk to for crazy money. So I asked Ethan for an introduction, and he provided it. And thank you, Ethan, for that, for trusting me with this conversation with Julio. But as I was reading the book, I realized that Julio and I come at the world from very different places. And while I agree with Julio that... Yes, the world is designed to bury us in bullshit. And if you look at the way apps and e-commerce platforms and banking, consumer banking tools like credit cards, how they are designed, how they are marketed, how they are issued, they are designed to ensnare us in a cycle of unconscious spending that renews month over month after month after month, thus the subscription aspect of the title. And I think that these apps and all these products have been designed and are distributed in a way that take advantage of the way our brains work and take advantage of the weaknesses in the way our brains work. They are designed to bury us in bullshit. They are designed to renew without us thinking about them. And we discuss this, and I agree with it. However, I think where we disagree is that there is a level of accountability and there is a level of mindfulness that is required of each of us some might call this maturity, that each of us needs to decide how we're going to become financially autonomous entities, despite all the people out there that are looking to separate us from our money. And, you know, I don't believe, as Julio implies in a few places, that consumers are all stooges who lack agency. I don't agree that all employees are suckers I don't believe that companies begrudgingly give us two weeks off vacation. And so the perspective that we come at this from is very different. However, the book ends up much closer to where my personal philosophy is, which is if you want to be happy, you've got to be autonomous, your own autonomous individual. And getting there requires taking responsibility for what you spend. Just because you want something doesn't mean you should buy it. Just because you're brilliant doesn't mean you're going to be hired and paid millions of dollars to make your work of art that you see in your head. And that your first order of business is to pay your bills, to find a way to use your talents to pay your bills. Later on, maybe the world will notice. But up until now, you got to figure out how to uh, scrimp, how to save and not buy. I will weigh in with some takeaways at the end of this conversation but for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation and come to your own conclusions. This is Julio Vincent Gambuto. Where in the city are you? So I'm in Dumbo at the moment in Brooklyn. Do you live in Dumbo yeah. as well? Uh, we don't. We live in Chelsea, but I needed to get out of the house. I was in the house for three years and it was just <laughs> like, I can't. I got to get on a train. I just got to, you know, within a half hour, I have to be somewhere that is not my living room and dining room. Yeah. So I'm in an office space now, which feels nice. Is that where you wrote the book? Did you write it in the office? I didn't. I wrote it uh, at Kona Roasters on 7th Avenue in a coffee shop. And every morning I was that guy like knocking to say like, hey, open up. I'm ready to go. Oh, my you know? God. How many so, hours uh, did you spend at Kona every day in the book production process? Uh, it's got to, I mean, it was like four or five hours every morning. Four hours is about my limit, mm -hmm. you know, four, like once I hit four hours of straight writing, like my brain is just a sieve after that. Yeah. So it's just, you know, that's really when I really have to stop and go. So many moons ago, I lived in the village right around the corner from Joe Coffee. Okay. Yeah. On the West side. And there was a note they put up. It was such a great coffee shop, and it was the first of what I believe is now a chain. This was like 20 years ago. And they put up a sign that said, we're so happy you're here. This is a great place, but we have limited space. So after you take time to enjoy your coffee, take a breath, please leave. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, now they do that everywhere in New York. Every restaurant, it's like, hi, welcome. You've got an hour and a half, and then we're going to come and forcibly remove you from your table. Get out. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> All right, let's talk about your new book. Please unsubscribe, thanks, how to take back our time, attention, and purpose in a world designed to bury us in bullshit. I have lots of thoughts about this book. We'll get into yeah. them. I agree with a great deal of it. There's a great deal of it I disagree with. But we know, having read your book, that happiness comes from going toward hard discussions, not away from them. So we're going we're gonna to relish an opportunity to, to tangle with some ideas today. Yeah. Let's first talk about, I want to know about your younger self. Tell me about the nerdy... <laughs> The nerdy gay class president who wanted and yearned to be successful. Who's this kid? You know, he's a kid who loved calligraphy and one life to live. <laughs> that's too on the nose, he, man. Come on. Was, it is, it was, that's what it was. It was completely on the nose. I mean, I, I watched soap operas. I ironed the clothes with my mother. I just did. I, I did everything you would think a gay 12-year-old would do. But you didn't 90s. come out until college. Right? right? No. Who knew? Right? Calligraphy just, and one life to live. And you're like, no, I'm straight. I'm totally straight. Totally. Want to be my girlfriend? <laughs> So that's who I was, you know, and I was, I was in a private school on a scholarship. So anything that I think my family understood to be gay, they just thought was because I was smart, mm. right? So that just sort of was the cover for everything. And I think until I got to college and realized like, oh, I'm actually a homosexual, <laughs> that would just change everything, right? And it was this light bulb for me and a light bulb for them. But that's who I was back in the 90s, and you know I still am now. So it's... I laughed out loud. You said when you got to college, you kissed a man for the first time, and the angels sang. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess that's how you know, right? That's how, If you don't know then, then you're, you don't know, right? Well, it's the same thing that you and, and all of my you know, straight friends experienced at 13 and 14, right? At like that moment of like, oh, my gosh, what is this? In the parking lot uh, of Perimeter Mall, absolutely. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Totally. You remember it. I right? do. You know of exactly course. Where I was you like, are. Oh, this is the greatest. She wants me to kiss her. My God. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And then after that, I'm like, do it again. Do it again. You know, like. All right. But that kid, the 12 year old kid who's gay, who's from an immigrant family, whose parents don't have a lot of money. Tell me about his dreams and his insecurities. Well, he was certainly insecure about fitting in. He was certainly insecure about being a part of the group and being a part of the group think for sure. And I think what he wanted, he definitely wanted to get away, right? Mm. And so for me, academic success was financial success was getting out of this environment. So for me, my sort of, you know, drive to be successful was right there parallel with how uncomfortable I was as a kid in this particular environment Look, I love all these people, but at the time, as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, when you're, when you're sort of aligning your direction academically and financially and dot, 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 that's where my brain was, mm. right? I've got to be rich. I've got to be successful. I've got to be able to go do great things, make a lot of money so that I have choices so that I can be as free as possible. I don't know that that was all conscious. In fact, it probably wasn't, sure, right? But yeah. that's, that was the logic. And my parents had a very, very tumultuous marriage. And since we're going deep here, I will tell you that I've been able in the years since to kind of look back and realize so much of that was about wanting to provide for her, wanting to save her, wanting to get them all out of this situation. I love my father. And that your dad wanted to, to help your mom or that you wanted to help your mom get out of that That I situation? wanted. Like, okay. I was this, you know, 13-year-old and I was like, I've got to save this family. Mm -hmm. I've got to work hard and I've got to, I'm the one who's going to do it. If dad can't, if mom can't, if they can't, I'm going to do it. And this isn't things that, you know, I came to easily. This sure. was after years and years of introspection and therapy. But, you know, you start to realize that that's kind of where it all comes from. And that's a lot have on the 13 year old shoulders right completely but it's a good excuse when you're gay because it gives you a focal point 
that's not yourself, mm. right? It gives you a focal point that's not, I, I don't want to deal with my own shit. I don't know how to deal with my own shit. I don't have language or resources to deal with my own shit. It's just easier for me to point at this situation and involve myself in it and put myself center stage in it and give myself a reason to be in it. And that saved me a lot of kind of inner looking. So that if you worked hard, if you achieved a certain amount academically, if your classmates recognized you as class president, everything would be okay. Because look at this thing you've set up. Look at the resume you're building. That's all going to put you in a different place as a human. Well, I think that was also the ethos at the time, right? It was Mm -hmm. not that it's not now, but it's certainly that has got some kinks in that armor now. But in the 80s and 90s, like that was how we grew up, right? We were... We were off of Reagan. We were on to Clinton at the time. And it was like, that was the decade of millionaire making, right? In this country, that was the decade that everyone thought, oh, wow, I can really be a part of American success in a really, really big way. And I can be one of the millionaires, right? The concept of a billionaire or a trillionaire was like obscene to us. But the 90s, to be a millionaire was this kind of incredible goal point or goal post that we all had. And so I associated that with a lot of what was you know, going through my head at the time. I'm a few years older than you growing up under Reagan, but the ethos was very much the same. I mean, it was even, you know, Reaganomics and that whole eighties power tie in wall street and stuff. And so I'm very much a product of that. And we have this in common that you said you focused on the future because as Morrissey would say in the future, when all is well, as Fitzgerald would say, your radiantly imagined future. What did the future hold for you? The future and success and happy and money were all the same thing to me, mm-hmm. right? It was not this, right? It was, <laughs> that, right? It was right. like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was that with a capital T. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, rising socioeconomically. It was being wealthy. It was being a different class too, right? It was so much of being something completely else, something completely other than anything that I was at the time, right? Again, not always consciously, super, you know, unconsciously, but that's, that's where I was headed. That future was bright because it included, you know, living in Manhattan and traveling all over the world and having whatever kind of cars you wanted and having the best clothing and, you know, going to the office and having an entire team and having, you know, anything that I saw on TV or that I saw from, the community around me who were all commuting into Manhattan, right, to be Wall Street brokers, et cetera, et cetera, I understood to be success. Expensive suits, all of it. Because then you would be somebody and you would matter. You'd be a fully formed human being. You mentioned clothes right there. Tell me what Ralph Lauren's polo golf shirt meant to you. Uh, so yes, this is in the book. It's a, I, I, I talk about this, this symbol of that man on his, on his horse, which, which I don't wear anymore on purpose because, uh, you know, as a kid, it just meant everything. Mm. So I went to this private school, which I love and, and continue to support to this day. And at this school was, you know, a, a friend of mine, uh, William, in our, my class, who, you know, his house was around the corner from the school. It was 3,000 square feet. He had a tennis court in the backyard. His mother in the 90s had a car phone, which was the biggest (laughs) deal in the world, right? Uh. You know, like one day at the country club for an event, I asked her for money for the phone to call my mother. And she said, how much is a pay phone? I don't know. know? So, (laughs) but he wore polo. And so it was just, it was boom. My brain said polo equals this. This lifestyle, this class, this upper mobility, a car phone, that's what that symbol meant to me. And it meant everything that my family was struggling to have. And so it became this symbol for me of, oh, my God, the only thing I ever want to do when I grow up is be able to walk into a polo store and buy (laughs) anything I want. Some of us dream of bigger things. I dreamt of going into a polo store and buying anything I, I, I actually have a joke where I was like, I thought affluence as a kid. I grew up middle class, you know, one of six kids. My parents had everything we needed, but, you know, there was not a lot of extra stuff. I thought the rich kids were the kids that had Atari and Ralph Lauren <laughs> sheets. That was wealth, right? This was before, like, Steinmart and TJ Maxx started selling cut tag polos. 
right? But I thought that's what wealth looked like. My dreams were pathetically oh. low, right? So. <laughs> wealth was like a bedspread that had paisley on it. There you go. Right? Like right. It, was, yeah. it, was, it was like ducks, wooden ducks on the walls right. somewhere or something like that, right? Yeah. It was just so many symbols of wealth at that time. Uh, were shared among among the whole country. So was Harvard a dream for you? What did that mean going to Harvard to you and your family? It meant everything. It meant the ultimate success. It meant, by way of saying, the ultimate wealth, right? Those were the same thing. And it was sort of a, a stamp of, or a confirmation that all of the sacrifice that they had made to put me into this private school was worth it. And I was there on a scholarship, but it still cost about 2500 bucks a year to send me. And they worked two and three jobs each to make sure I could go there and to, you know, to earn that $2,500 a year. Uh, now, I mean, the idea of $2,500 a year being the barrier between you and getting uh, an independent school education is preposterous. But at the time, that was a lot of money, especially to us. And so to go to Harvard was just this final confirmation that that sacrifice had been worth it. Yeah. And it was evidence that your plan, your plan to become somebody was working, that it was being executed well. Absolutely. No greater symbol or brand, if you will, right, to say, hey, you did the thing you thought you were going to do. So walk me through, you went into the entertainment business for a career. Walk me through what happens between Harvard living a bi-coastal lifestyle, and then finding yourself stuck on a treadmill and not getting the happiness you thought this career path would bring you? Well, I think, you know, anyone who knows me well will say like, hey, what are you talking about? You know, like, didn't you know this was going to be hard? Of course it was going to be hard, right? <laughs> so many of my colleagues and friends walked into investment banking and went to law school and sort of did all the things that were going to more directly make them money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being in the entertainment business is very difficult. And that kind of struggle never seems to end. Uh, and the constant go, 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 the constant need, 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 the constant sense that I have to be projecting this image of success and that I have to be making sure that people are looking at me like I am successful never really allowed for the growth that it would take to become successful. I was listening to one of your other episodes the other day about, you know, having to fail, having mm. to fail along the way, having to speak a language like it's gibberish until you get to the moment of fluency. And I think because there had been so much pressure on me when I left Harvard to say, okay, you're going to be successful now. You're going to be wealthy now. That's it. it. This is it. Yeah. There was never this period where I was allowed to and it wasn't my parents. It wasn't school. It was me. I never allowed myself just to be learning, just to be failing, just to be tripping up and fumbling through the artist process. It always had to be, when am I getting a big paycheck? When am I getting, you know, when am I getting the thing? And that's fine, I suppose, at 25 and 26. But then when you get to 30 and you get to 35, <laughs> that pressure gets in more intense and more intense and more intense. Yeah. And so I think by the time I wrote the book and by the time the pandemic happened, I had gone to graduate school. I had put myself back in film school. I wanted to learn the business uh, more directly. And I was kind of shuttling back and forth from L.A. to New York because it all looked good, right? It all looked really successful. But it was fucking expensive. <laughs> it was fucking exhausting. And I was, you know, keeping contacts in L.A. and having meetings in L.A., but also in New York, in the community, wanting to shoot this feature film. My first feature came out during the pandemic. And so I was kind of just trying to make everybody happy and live everybody's best version of me except my own and kind of going back and forth and constantly on a plane. You know, now looking back, it looks ridiculous and sounds ridiculous, but at the time, it was what I thought was going to get me that thing, right? A successful movie, which was going to make me millions. And I could finally say that all of this kind of struggle had been worth it. Yeah. And you hit a wall. Absolutely. When did you have that moment of clarity that this was not yeah. sustainable? You know, the book opens with this brunch that I had to celebrate January 1, 2020 with really good friends. And I was in an apartment. I had moved to Manhattan because I wasn't really dating very much 
on Staten Island or in Los Angeles, which is where I was going back and forth from. And so I, I knew that I had to make a change. And so I moved into the city. And this is like, you know, eight weeks before the pandemic. And, uh, and you know, I was like, oh. Great timing. Like, but, yeah, Borough Boy, finally, like, living in Manhattan. Oh, like, this is it. This is it. Boom. Right? Like, yeah. a bomb. Right? Yeah. And, like, everybody had it. It was a shitty experience for everybody. Yep. But it was like this bomb hit my life because – all the running and going and speeding and drilling and, and all of it blah, 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 was just stopped. And I'm in this apartment on the fucking Upper East Side, which I, you know, was like, again, another brand to me, right? Like, oh, I'm successful if I live on the Upper East Side. And alone for six months, like six months straight, I left the house to go to the grocery store. I left the house to go to the park every day to go for a run. And we were all alone, right? But I kind of found myself in this break point where I couldn't keep the going going and suddenly it revealed itself kind of that the going and the going was masking a lot of shit I had never dealt with did not want to confront did not want to actually look at in myself in my life around me so the pandemic was this massive break point and you wrote a medium piece that it Sounds like you didn't have any expectations for you were just trying to get some thoughts on. No, I was just pissed off. (laughs) No, I was, you know, I I had posted on Medium a bunch of times before, but not, you know, like who, who read it? A hundred people like, you know, went around my Facebook for a few people, whatever. I wrote about Hillary Clinton. I wrote about the 2016 election, Yep. you know, and, and for me, it was always a matter of like, okay, you know, how do I move my instinct to rant on Facebook to a more sort of thoughtful, considerate place or platform or form. And so I found posting on Medium to be really helpful for that. But I had only done it a few times. And then the, you know, month into the pandemic, it's like April 2020, we had lost five people in our family friend circle. Mm. Everyone around us in New York was in their house. Ambulance sirens is all you heard in New York City at the time. It was tumbleweeds in the streets. And I was just sank into this deep depression. And I went to bed that night and I kind of like almost could feel the weight of it all just like push me to bed. And I woke up the next morning and I got this email from J. Crew that was like, hey, want to buy a sweater? 40% off. <laughs> and I was just, it was so like offensive to my core in that moment. And it was more because the retail brands, you know, three weeks prior had emailed the whole country and said, hey, this is how you wash your hands. You put soap on the left, and then you put soap on the right. You should wash your hands. So they were aware of what was going on. They were in the emergency with us. And then three weeks later, you know, top of April, it was like, hey, you want a cashmere sweater? Shipping's free. And I was like, hey, fuck you. Like this was it was it was so it was so like on a cellular level sure. so up, so upsetting to me and so I wrote this piece on on Facebook called prepare for the ultimate gaslighting which was my concern that this massive effort would be made to get us to go back to normal to get the economy up and running again the same way that it was to ignore what we had learned and saw and understood in the pandemic about how our society really runs and to kind of put the veil back on and and get back to business and get back to constant growth and get back to inequality and get back to all the nonsense and the piece, you know, I thought a hundred people were going to read it yeah, and it went online and it went nuts and it was like the weekend before Easter and Passover and just the numbers kept ticking up and I had never experienced that before. So I was like, what is this? And that just went, Bonkers Don't say the number. Up. Don't say the number, okay? So I wrote a piece on Medium within a week of this. And the one I had written previously had gotten like 100 likes or whatever they call them on Medium. And then this piece, which was called Your Only Goal is to Arrive, basically drew a parallel between traveling with children on an airplane and the pandemic. Basically, like, forget about everything else you're going to do. Mm. Just try to make it. Try to be healthy. Try to get you know where you're going, all that kind of stuff. And it went bananas and it got coverage on two different news channels around the country. I don't know. And it had like 450,000 reads. And the thing that's been read the widest of anything that I've written. Now tell me how wide yours went. 
It went to 15 million people in <laughs> two days. It's incredible. It went to, there's actually an error in my book bio, but it went to 98 countries. You know, now it's at like 21 million, I think. And, you know, it's a, it's a weird experience because, you know, what's that expression? Everyone in the future will have 15 minutes of fame. Like this was like, this was two days of like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. I had people send. I had people sending it to me saying, "You should really read this." <laughs> I, like, I had somebody I do it. that too, or somebody. <laughs> somebody goes. Somebody. I posted on Facebook, and my friend was like, "Oh my god, I read this. You wrote that?" <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like no one reads the byline. It's like this big. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I. You know, it was. It was just this weird experience, but having that experience, I think, in another time and place, may have been different. But yep. having it when you're alone in your apartment and you were just like really angry at your favorite men's shop and, like, right. and, it, and it goes bonkers. I mean, I had people calling or emailing rabbis and priests saying, can I read this? Because, you know, so much of the piece was about renewal and like what do we take forward out of the mm-hmm. pandemic when this mm-hmm. is over? And what is it that we really want in our lives when this is over? And so I had folks asking to read it. And then the other end of the spectrum, I just got emails that said, you. (laughs) You know, just people who were pissed that I had said the thing that was on so many people's minds. Let's talk about the subscription economy and ClickUp economics, because this is all like your point of view. You come back, you tell the story, because where you end up is how I feel like we should all be acting, but it should be coming from an acknowledgement that we have the power to make our own decisions. You're laying the landscape of the economy that we all exist in. I want you to lay it out the way you lay it out in the book, please. Sure. You know, look back to the eighties and nineties, right? We grew up in a system, right? That, that did a certain amount of things. It allowed producers to make profit It allowed people to sell their labor for work. Like, this is all normal to us. It is capitalism up until 99, 2000. Like, this is how the system functioned. It was inequitable in some ways. It was frustrating for many people. But it functioned, right? What we've seen since then, as digital capitalism has taken over, as the Internet has been integrated into commerce, is wild inequality, a wild kind of runaway economy that has split people in two. The middle class is dwindling. The upper classes are bathing in cash. The lower classes, that group just keeps growing and growing. You know, there's 38 million people below the poverty line in America. And we've just gotten so used to big numbers that that doesn't mean anything to any of us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, but Specifically, my theory, take, perspective is that this has happened because we have supercharged our consumption. We have supercharged our buying. We have eliminated that moment between I want something and I can get it. 100%. Totally agree with you. And and every – this device that's sitting right next to me and is never more than two feet from me because I don't know what I would do if it were – It knows more about me and knows exactly what to sell me, what time to sell it to me, and how to sell it to me, unlike any device that has ever existed before in our lives. Yeah, in the history of humankind, in the history of commerce. So this idea that just because we have Citibank and Wells Fargo and Apple and Google and we have all the brands we had in the end of the 90s, they're all still the same brands. The idea that this is the same system that we operated in in the last century is preposterous to me. Mm-hmm. This is a completely different system. This is a complete, we can call it capitalism all day long. And I don't care if you love or loathe capitalism. What I care about is the last 20 years has wildly transformed the way we do business in this country. And there's a lot of people not involved in the sharing of the national wealth because of it. Mm. And, you know, I make this point in the book, but I'll make it here. You know, everyone knows how to spend money on a phone but very few know how to make money on a phone. And that is the divide right there, right? We put this new tool in the hands of everybody and everyone knows how to use it to make to spend money. Everyone knows how to use it to get a blender, a recliner, a new kitchen delivered to their house. Like everyone knows how to use it to buy shit. 
Very few know how to use it to make money, to make money at scale, to make money digitally in your sleep, to make money the way that the very, very highest are making money right now. And so my call in the book is for us to be aware of that, is for us to put limits back on our usage of all of these tools and to slow it down. Because those are the two things that have changed. The speed at which we transact and the lack of limits. Mm. And I make the analogy in the book to a shopping cart, right? Like the shopping cart itself in the 20th century was invented and then got bigger and bigger and bigger. Tell the story about how the shopping cart was invented because I think this is interesting. Sure. So this guy, Sylvan Goldman, and I think it's Kansas or Indiana. I have to look at my own book. But It's a um, flyover you know, state. Who cares? It's, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so and I think it's Oklahoma. Anyway, so he supermarkets at the time are new supermarkets, right? The idea that you would put all of these things, that you would put your fruits and vegetables and your pharmaceuticals and all of these things in one place is a new concept. And so supermarkets become really popular. And so the owner of the Humpty Dumpty supermarket chain realizes that women, because of course it was women who were doing the shopping for the home at the time, women are only carrying what they can fit in the basket that they brought from home. Right. So they had this huge supermarket, but they'll only buy what they can fit in the basket. And what they can fit in the basket is only what they can hold. It's only what their arms and their forearms will hold. I had never thought of this before. And I was like, oh my God, this is the most analog of innovations. And yet it has a massive impact on the way people consume. So the owner of of the supermarket says, and he has this moment, this eureka moment in his office, and he goes, oh my gosh, if I take a folding chair and I put two baskets on it, an upper one and a lower one, and I put wheels on it, big tech from 4000 BC, right? right? And I put wheels on it, then I've expanded that limit. And now people can put more things into the shopping cart, and then they can put more things outside into their new thing called a car, which would have a bigger and bigger place for you to be putting these items to transport them home. Or I could just use those wheels because I'm in town and wheel myself home with all of these items. And so my point is that limit expanded, but it never broke. There was always a limit to how large that shopping cart was going to be. And when we moved to the Internet, the shopping cart is limitless. It is endless. It never has a bottom. It never calls on you to deliver it yourself. It never says, use your human strength to move this shit into the car and then mm-hmm. into the house. So we never have the, the what's that word, corporeal, the, the physical experience of actually having to get the stuff into the house. All of these things were boundaries for us. All of these mm-hmm. things were limits for us. All of these things were in the way of speedy commerce. And what we've got now is a system where I can take my phone I actually don't have it next to me. Take my phone. I can press, 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 and the shit appears tomorrow at my doorstep, and I don't have to go through any of that. And so you have limitlessness. You have the, a broken limit. And in mathematics, a broken limit is a problem. And trust, it's a problem for the society. Here we go, the limit. And a lot of people who have read the book have said, yeah, but you have the limit of what I can spend. Sure. But do you know how many Americans are in debt? Americans are charging shit on their credit cards, are living on credit cards. I mean, Bernie Sanders has that quote that he used so much in the last election, that fact that you know most Americans couldn't bear a $400 expense if it were an emergency. We are consuming so fast and so much that we don't have savings anymore. We don't have a backstop for any of this. And so we are living day to day, paycheck to paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. And that's the case for the majority of Americans. Yes, but, and I just kept saying, yeah, but throughout, you know, that hundred yeah. pages of your book. Hit where me. You're, like, I want to talk. I want to yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Okay. So I agree. I mean, debt is a massive problem and banks are wildly aggressive in rewarding credit and giving people more than enough rope to hang themselves for a lifetime, right? From student loans to mortgages from, you know, 2006 that we all remember brutally, right? To credit cards at 24% APR, Right. On the other hand, you make the assertion at one point 
that workers cannot get ahead, which I don't believe. But the reason you say they can't get ahead is because they can't pay for essentials, the list of which is growing ever longer every day, including things like look at the price of look at how they ream you every time, you know, you use Instacart to order a smoothie from Jamba Juice. It's like there's never been a better example of a voluntary tax on laziness than Instacart, right? Get up off your couch and walk to fucking Jamba Juice if you want a Jamba Juice. These things that we buy into, I'm turning into my dad now, but but I'm starting to see his wisdom everywhere I go. The things we buy into and assume are essentials, and this is where you end up in the end in the book, the thing we assume are essentials are absolutely not essentials. We have given ourselves permission to be willfully ignorant of mm-hmm. our own financial weakness. We are putting ourselves in these situations as if accountability, frugality are just notions that we don't have time for. And so I know that conservatives, and I consider myself a moderate, I know conservatives love to talk about accountability and personal responsibility, but you're not going to achieve financial autonomy without those two things. And you come to that conclusion at the end of the book. So where's the balance? It's a great question because I don't know that there's an answer, right? Which is everyone has to be responsible. Everyone, you know, conservatives love to talk about personal responsibility by way of saying corporations can do whatever they want. You're the one who's responsible for the boundary you put up, whether you buy or not buy. And on the left, we'd like to make sure that everyone knows that these systems are taking over and are pushy, 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 which I believe, right? Mm -hmm. The answer is in the middle. The answer is right in the middle, right? The answer is both. The answer is that we've got to have public policies architected to control some of the more onerous parts of the economy and those which are kind of overreaching and doing it with business practices that are not necessarily empowering to the consumer. And then we've also got to have we've also got to have a, a sort of resurgence and a renaissance of the personal responsibility that says what you're saying. That says, "Hey, how about some fucking savings? Hey, how about making, you know, how about how about you don't spend you know, X, Y, Z on a new knockoff Gucci bag, and you actually put that money in the bank. What I'm saying in the book is that the pressure is ratcheted up Mm -hmm. in a society where consumption is so conspicuous, in a society where on my phone I can see before 8 a.m. 300 people and all the great vacations they're taking, the pressure is on. And that pressure benefits large corporations and that pressure becomes more intense for consumers. So no, I don't blame corporations without also blaming consumers, but yeah. we're all in this together and we all share a lot of responsibility for where we're at right now. Let's talk about marketing tactics. Like I a hundred percent agree with you that the more brands try to insinuate themselves into my life, the more annoyed I get, right? I don't want a relationship. I want a haircut, right? Exactly. Like, we, you're not my boo supercuts. Like, You don't need to text me, right? I'll come to you when this terrible head of hair needs a trimming, okay? So talk to me about how you think we got there and what we can do about it. Well, we got there from my perspective because marketing has become essential for every business in the country. I mean, that's an obvious thing, right? But you've got the language that marketing uses has become so casual and friendly and that's on purpose and that is sort of an outgrowth of our entire society becoming more casual and more friendly but what it has done is it has blurred the lines between company consumer buyer seller everyone's your friend now and Social media has contributed to that. The lack of formality at the office has contributed to that. There's so many things in our culture that have led us here. But where we are right now is that every single one of those companies wants you to believe that you're their friend, that they have a personal connection with you. That's just the surface of it all. Behind that is the business mechanic that says, yeah, I want you to consistently come and consistently give me your money on repeat automatically because I have your credit card. And so don't just get that one haircut, but you're going to buy a package of haircuts for the month. I'm going to charge your credit (laughs) card. I mean, a haircut is like, it's, it's, I know I'm going to need one. I know I'm going to need one at some point. It's fine. If you're talking about Jamba juice points and it's fine if you're talking about like things that don't actually matter. But when you're talking about like the entire society being on autopilot, 
the entire society having their credit cards locked into corporations that are just keep charging them and charging them and sending shit and sending shit. That's a state of affairs that I think we need to look at. Millions of us, tens of millions of us have subscriptions we don't even remember that we signed up for. And they're charging our cards. And I, I think we're paying for Paramount Plus like three different ways, by the way, at my house. Totally. <laughs> like Amazon, Apple, and like, I'm like, sweetie, didn't we pay for this already this month? It's crazy. And it was funny. I was like, now I'm seeing businesses, apps that will come in and you link their credit cards to the app and they will find all the subscriptions you might have forgotten about. And guess what? That business is a subscription business. Exactly. Okay. So that's how fucked up it is. Right. And the reason why is because subscription businesses have higher valuations, right? Because recurring revenue is more predictable, blah, blah, blah. I signed up unwittingly for a subscription to a sports apparel brand called Fabletics. Surely you've been targeted with Fabletics. <laughs> that and Bonobos. Fabletics right? and Bonobos. Love my Facebook, right? Like, <laughs> right. Okay. Me too, right? I'm in the you're an old man and you're 1% gay bucket on Instagram. I think that's the. You know, Fabletics is like Lululemon, but little down market. But I was like, I didn't even know I signed up for a subscription until I saw like a charge on my credit card, like two months later. And I was like, oh, they give you like automatic credits every month, but they're charging you automatically. So more and more businesses are going this way. So if we want to stay in control of our finances, we've got to be more aware of that kind. Absolutely, of thing. we've got to be aware. We've got to we've got to be diligent about our checkbook. We've got to be diligent about making sure that you know. When I was a kid, we used to balance the checkbook at the end of the week and the end of the month, right? Very yep. few of us do that anymore. Like we yep. we just check the bank account three, four, five times an hour or a day to figure out if there's enough money in there for that check to go in and that check to go. In. Look, some of us are better at this than others. My point is though that like we've gotten so used to our money coming in and coming out so fast and going everywhere and those charges being so micro that it becomes not worth it to spend the time to fight it, correct it, change it. You're like, oh, it's just two bucks. Oh, it's just three bucks. Oh, I'm going to take time out of my busy day to audit my checking account to make sure that my charges for $2 and $3 are in order. Fuck it, whatever. And these companies know that. Of course they know that, right? And I'm not saying it's set up because it's evil. I'm saying that it's set up that way because it benefits somebody except the consumer. It's set up that way because it takes advantage of our psychological tendencies our preference for, they call it removing friction mm -hmm. from the transaction. Removing friction, pain points, and seams. Those are the three things that have been, that's the, the quick brand speak, right? Business conference mm -hmm. rooms all over the country. Seams, friction, and pain points. And if you can eliminate those, you eliminate the obstacles that are in the way from desire for something to getting it on your doorstep or on your, on, or yeah. on your screen. And so things like seamless are named that way for a reason, right? It should be seamless. Mm -hmm. It should be smooth. You shouldn't have to even fucking think about whether you're hungry before that pizza gets to your house. Except now it gets there and yeah. it's $35 and it's cold because some poor guy ran through the streets of New York with it. And the quality has right. gone down. And that's just me bitching. But, but my point is that the subscription economy benefits the ones writing the subscription agreements, the producers, the actual corporations, and they're doing it at such scale, right? The scale is really important, right? Wells Fargo has something like you know, 75 million customers. That's the size of France, right? And what the problem is, is that these become our public policies. This, is, this becomes how we vote. This becomes how we show support for things. And we're not doing this consciously. We're just clicking agree, agree, agree. I mean, think about how many times you get in your email box. Uh, terms and conditions have been updated. We just delete yeah. that now. I've, right? I've never read any of that. It's never fine. read any of that. You should cancel your Paramount Plus if you feel like you're you're being you know charged three times. I got to figure out which one to cancel first. That's and where you signed up and what device I have to cancel it on. And if I try to cancel it, I'm not going to be able to cancel it anyway. So anyway. Uh, Victor Frankl said, psychologist Victor Frankl said, between a stimulus and a response, there's a moment, right? And what marketers are doing, evil or not evil or on whatever, wherever on the spectrum of evil you believe they exist. I know some marketers, some of them are really nice people, yeah. others are evil. 
we have to find that moment. We have to stop that moment because all marketers, all digital media people, and I was a big part of this for a while, are taking advantage of the ways our brains work to shrink that moment, to give us less time to think, to be less intentional about how we spend our time, how we spend, how we dedicate our attention and how we spend our money. It is absolutely accurate. That time shrink is the goal. And I think it's important, though, to, to point out that, you know, in the writing of the book and, and in the, the layout of the book, right, is like, this is where it starts. This is kind of the surface of what I'm talking about. But when you go to a deeper level, it's about what we think of ourselves, where we find happiness, where we find satisfaction, where we find validation, where we find love. All of that is directly related to what we're willing to click on, what we're willing to buy, what we're willing to fill our garage with, what we're willing to drive. All of this is connected. And so my call in the book is for readers to dig a little deeper and become aware not only of these systems, but of our own sense of happiness and fulfillment and belonging so that we control that, right? So that we as the yeah. individual consumer can say, you know what? I'm a happy guy. I'll be fine with a Hyundai. It doesn't mean I'm less of a person because I don't drive the BMW. And it sounds crazy when you hear it said out loud that way, but that's the psychology at play for that branding. And so I want people to just become aware that this exists, become aware that these are tools in the toolbox of business, and that as consumers, we're whole people. We can be happy without all of this. doesn't mean don't buy anything again. It just, it just yeah. means let's look inside a little bit more and understand that you don't need it. You want it. And that's okay. I think that's the fundamental problem I had is because the way you lay out the economy, my interpretation, is that all workers are victims and that all consumers are suckers. But in the end, you say, basically, from a consumer perspective anyway, you have to take responsibility for yourself. That instead of trying to express, to gain happiness and earn respect by the things we wear and the lifestyle we lead, that you gain that strength and that self-confidence through, through autonomy, through personal autonomy, by saying, these are the things I value. I value my family, my friends, my husband, my wife, these are the things I want for me and I deserve this, but the way I get it isn't by buying that polo shirt or that Mercedes. It's by making good decisions that allow me to be self-determined. Absolutely. And I don't think that all consumers are suckers or that workers are all getting shafted. I want people to know that they have power in the system and more power in the system than they think because the second you don't understand your own individual power, which is the autonomy you're talking about, that's when you get taken advantage of. And on an individual basis, you get one person gets taken advantage. Okay, they're the fool. On a collective basis, 300 million people in the country being constantly taken advantage of. I mean, look at the housing crisis. That was a business practice. That was a, you know, 08, 09 was, was predatory lending. Is yes. my father responsible for signing that document? Of course he is. But there's also government policy that said that everybody deserves to have a home. And so you have to give loans to a certain number of people. Banks will take, you know, the foot of rope you give them and what, what is it? You give them a foot, they take a mile, right? Absolutely. hundred percent. But there was government policy that like made that happen too. I, I don't deny that. I just want people to understand that. There is predatory behavior and that they have to find their sense of awareness and yep. of that moment between I want and I sign to get. Yep. And that they have the power in that moment to challenge, to interrogate, to, to stand up for themselves. And if you can't do it individually, you can do it collectively. I mean, what we're seeing across the mm -hmm. country this summer is union action enormous union action, right? We're seeing it not only in Hollywood, which is my sphere, we're seeing it with nurses, we're seeing it with teachers, we're seeing it with, with workers all over the country. 
with truck drivers, you know about the UPS yeah, contract that yeah. uh, the Teamsters just did, right? Okay, so I had Andrew Yang on this podcast a year ago. And Andrew Yang, of course, was talking about the demise of truck drivers because of AI and automation, you know, two years ago. And it's like, dude, no. In fact, the changes in the economy, some of which you lamented, have actually led to thousands and thousands of new jobs. And because of that demand, the unions have that, there's that friction in the market that makes them walk in there and go like, you want our drivers? It's 170 grand a piece. That's a big deal. But it exists because of both the collective bargaining that they have, but also because there's a demand for their services based on where the economy has grown. There's this give and take, you know, that's what I was, as I'm reading it, I'm like, what about this? What about that? I think there is a give and take. I just think that those of us who have the microphone are not always the ones who are suffering the consequences of a lot of this policy and suffering the consequences Mm -hmm. of a lot of this economic maneuvering. Look, I don't make any bones about what I wrote in the book, uh, but I do think it's really important to know that we're all having this conversation somewhere near the top, right? Somewhere, however however we want to put ourselves up there and that 10%, 5%, whatever it is, there's an entire conversation below socioeconomically that never gets the light of day. And I wanted to be a small voice for that conversation that says, hey, I've got three jobs and I never see my kids. We have a problem here. I make $10 an hour, $12 an hour, and my life would be radically different if I made 20. We have a problem here. It doesn't excuse laziness. It doesn't excuse autonomy. It doesn't excuse responsibility. But I think the architecture and the systems that we're a part of benefit greatly by our lack of awareness and our lack of fight and our lack of kind of getting in there and understanding how this all works. I agree with you. And I I wish, like, I want where you ended up to be the start, to say you have power, you have autonomy, you have the ability to decide how good or how bad, within a certain amount of bandwidth, you really can make your life better by making better decisions. It doesn't mean it's equal. It's just like, you know, because where you ended up is a place of empowerment. Let's talk about that. You talk about renewal. Tell me about your renewal. Renewal, and as I describe it in the book, is kind of just this, the book is a process book, right? The book is, and and the book is laid out that way because of it. But the book is a process book. The book says, hey, I'm not telling you to unsubscribe from Paul's podcast forever and go away and never... For God's sake, if anybody stops following this podcast. I'm saying saying best for us all to have this moment where we can step back from all of it, reevaluate, and then actively and intentionally bring into our lives the things that make us happy, the things that educate us, the things that lift us up. There are voices like yours and countless other podcasters and countless other media that are edifying and make our lives better. Let's keep those or put them back in. My point is, step back, evaluate all of it, and then put back in the things that really make sense for you. And I think since mm-hmm. 2000, 2003, 4, we've just been clicking and clicking and clicking and clicking. And a lot of our lives are just full of noise and bullshit because we agreed to it 10 years ago, or we brought that person onto our Facebook eight years ago, or that person or that you know, podcast has been in our queue for 10 years, whatever it might be. I'm advocating in the book for this process. Step back, reevaluate it all, see what you really want to spend your time and focus on, and then actively engage in those things. And for me, that process is then sort of brings this renewal. And I've had this renewal in my own life of more human time with people more eye contact with people, more shaking hands with people who work in my neighborhood. It's all very Mr. Rogers, but it does actually make a difference in my day-to-day happiness to be interacting with other humans, to be having coworkers again in a space that's not my dining room, to be going out into the community and, and participating in things I didn't participate in before because I was on this constant treadmill of, I got to make millions of dollars. I have to be successful. I have to be. I have to be. My world is going to crumble 
if I don't win an Oscar and have $50 million in the bank. I'm not a good person if that doesn't happen. I'm not useful to the society if that doesn't happen. Dude, chill out. <laughs> like, And so I've hit 45, and maybe it's just hitting 45, but I've come to this place of, like, I'm going to renew my life from the inside out. And part of that is taking my hands out of all of this see what I actually want to bring into my life and then bringing it back intentionally, having the relationships that I want, having the food I want, having the time with my loved ones that I want. None of this is unique to my book with respect to like intentionally living and designing your life the way you want it. But I tried to present uh, the thesis really is, hey, you know, there's a lot of forces who don't want you to take that moment or a time to think about all of it. And it's important that we do. Because we're all afraid to be left behind. That's a quote from your book. <laughs> and I think it's true. Why are we trying so hard? Why are we all putting so much time into our, into our Facebook and Instagram presences, whether we're building a business or trying to become a comedian or just be known as a virtuous person in our neighborhood? Because we want people to know we existed yeah. because we're afraid we're going to die and we will someday and we will all be forgotten but we're trying and trying yeah. so hard. We want to belong. We want to know that we mattered. We want to know that the people around us gave a shit or that we gave a shit about them. And, right. you know, we want people to come to the funeral. <laughs> so it's like, it's <laughs> like we're, we're pretty easy to figure out as a species, right? That's like so funny. it's not so that hard funny. to figure out what it is that we want, but we want to know that we, it was the biggest <laughs> funeral. It was the greatest funeral. <laughs> All right, before we quit, I need to know, tell me honestly, as a gay man, how do you feel about Pride Oreos? Oh, jeez, enough already. Come on. We're doing this? We're going to do this? No, didn't you say, wait, was this in your yeah, book? Or was, it was this my book. I imagine no, 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 this? no, I'm talking, I'm saying enough already with the Pride. I'm oh, saying, oh, I thought you were no, accusing Oreo. me of trying to I'm saying enough already with the Pride Oreos. <laughs> like, this is the most intimate, important, life-changing world-shaking moment of my life to come out of the closet and is for millions of people. And you're going to put that shit on an Oreo wrapper? Like, enough already! <laughs> enough. I don't need the thank you from the Mondelez International Sugar Corporation that I can, you know, I don't need the permission to lead my life the way I want to. So how do you think about, you know, companies are bending over backwards to prove their acceptance and their progressiveness and their inclusivity, but a lot of it feels disingenuous. So like, where does, where, like, how do you feel about that? Which of those efforts is sincere and which are total I'll horseshit? tell you which ones are. The local ones are sincere. When I'm a local barber and I step out of my barber shop and I know that I have something to lose by supporting the local pride parade, then that's an important endorsement or support, whatever you want to call it. But when some massive billion-dollar corporation makes a strategic decision to put the pride flag on an Oreo cookie display, like, enough. We don't need, there's no, there's, you know, and the truth is that there is a risk there, right? Like, look, well, look what happened with Bud Light, right? Like, I have relatives who will not drink Bud anymore, Budweiser anymore, because they put a trans person in one of their ads or one of their online videos, whatever it was. And, so there are costs to pay, right? I get it and I appreciate it. How about we put those dollars and those effort and that time into actually changing public policy, actually protesting to make sure that we, that we change the actual laws and rules that govern our lives. I realize that it has effect. I realize that there's a culture shift that can only be brought about when big forces of the culture shift their thinking but Oreo cookies is just not one that I find to be particularly uh, significant. Sorry. It's interesting to just go, okay, well, are they, are they inclusive or are they just watering down what this is all about? It's you know? watered down when you have a cookie company saying we support LGBTQIA plus, plus, plus rights. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. What does it even, it doesn't really right. mean anything to me. It doesn't change my life. It's the same, you know, there's a, there's a big, big divide in the gay community. And I say the gay community because I'm 45 and came out in the 90s. In the queer community, there's a big divide about whether or not things like, you know, the New York Pride Parade and the larger Pride Parades should take endorsements um, from big brands or whether they shouldn't. Are they a festival and a carnival to celebrate the liberation of, of our community or are they actually, 
actually just still a protest about the lack of inclusivity. At the end of the day, it's, it's important, I think, to just recognize that this is a matter of really intimate and personal. It was made a public matter by politics, but it remains a personal and intimate journey. So that's what they're going. Interesting. All right, folks, my guest is Julio Vincent Gambuto. He's the author of a new book called Please Unsubscribe. Thanks. Julio, where can our listeners find out more about you? You can go to juliovincent.com. That's J-U-L-I-O, like juliovincent.com. You can go to Barnes & Noble, or you can go to your local independent bookseller, or you can go to Amazon. The book is available nationwide in the U.S. uh, and in Canada, and will be available in in the United Kingdom come August 29th. Thank you so much. Well, thank you to Julio for taking the time to be a part of it. I did enjoy that conversation, and I'm glad I've gotten to know him. And, you know, I think having respectful disagreements is something we haven't been doing very well in the past, oh, eight years or so. Uh, Probably a lot longer than that. But I think having conversations with people you disagree with and trying to find common ground is important. And I really do believe and wish that more people think and act the way Julio is recommending at the end of the book, that we each take accountability for recognizing the world is what it is in terms of, and it's going to get worse, by the way, in terms of the way that corporations are designing their products to separate us from our money. I think that's going to continue to get worse, but that requires an increased mindfulness and an increased sense of accountability for all of us. And that is just what it is. And that's what it means to be a grown up in today's world. And if you spend your money on something that you saw on Instagram, that's not Instagram's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's your decision as a grown up. And so, yes, some of us are more susceptible to these things than others, but it requires all of us to try to extend that period between the stimulus and the response to say, I crave financial autonomy more than I crave this J. Crew sweater. That will not bring me the happiness that I am somehow seeking through what I spend. So I'm happy that's where Julio ended up. So along those lines, a few notes. You know, in the book, Julio at length discusses inequality and, you know, how basically suggesting how can any of us be happy in a world where there's people like Elon Musk who are worth tens of billions of dollars. I think billionaires are a red herring in our society. I think that we make a much bigger deal out of them than indeed the effect they have on our lifestyle. Elon Musk is not the competition. Jeff Bezos is not the competition, nor is Mark Zuckerberg. The competition is you. I'm in the 1%, but Elon Musk has 10,000 times more dollars than I have. But he's not the competition. The competition is me. The competition is what kind of a life do I want to lead? What's required to go and live that kind of a life? Do I want super fancy cars and houses all over the world? Or do I want to live a simple life where I get to go on hikes and write poetry and you know live in a simple place. And I don't expect to be able to get the most in the world because I value my free time over whatever those extra working hours are going to provide for me from a material standpoint. This is about deciding who we want to be and making the choices that will lead us there. I saw a quote today. I don't know who's from. I hope it wasn't from some horrible tyrant, but it said, we don't pick our futures. We pick our habits and our habits decide our future. I think that's highly highly relevant to this kind of conversation. You become what you spend on, you know, and in Julio's early life, he talked about he wanted to be a bi-coastal entertainment professional. This was the image he had for himself. And that lifestyle, it turns out, doesn't pay off for most people. That unless you get that hit, you turn into Quentin Tarantino or Greta Gerwig, like you're not going to make money. And that's a choice. That you decide you want to, you know, put it all on black and go for, you know, spin the roulette wheel of your career, that's a choice. If it doesn't pay off, that's not anybody else's fault. Anyway, I think that we should all be focused on what we're capable of and not worry about people who have had otherworldly success. I don't look at prime athletes and go, why is LeBron better at basketball than I am? It's not fair that he that he's achieved these heights. It's not fair that he's six eleven or however tall he is, and that I'm only six one and a half, by the way. And I think we should all focus on ourselves and what we're capable of instead of worrying about Zuckerberg and Bezos and all that crew. Secondly, the whole notion of regulation, I hear what he's saying. Like, yeah, it would be good if we could somehow make the world a little less predatory because there are people who are taken advantage of in this world and we should do our best 
to try to protect those people. But then, you know, where does paternalism start and what kind of regulation is actually effective? Do you think that the government is responsible, like to the point where they know what's best for you? I'm not so sure about that. Yes, we should raise taxes on Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And oh, somehow we have to capture the appreciated assets that haven't resulted in income. How, how do we do that? Is it really, do you trust the government to spend their money better than the Gates Foundation does? I think that I, if I had to give $100 to either the United States government or the Gates Foundation in terms of solving world's problems, I'm a little more confident in the way the Gates Foundation goes about their business than, than the United States government. That's one thing. Secondly, let's talk about regulation. Consider the Dodd-Frank Act which was co-authored by Barney Frank after the 2008 economic collapse in an effort to create regulations that would prevent banks from needing to be bailed out by the United States government. That's a good intent, right? Certainly, our government shouldn't be bailing out these banks. However, what's happened? What are the unintended consequences? Well, it turns out they've raised the capital requirements so much that small banks weren't viable, that, that it was harder for, for new banks to be started. So what happened? <laughs> Small banks got bought by big banks, and the big banks are bigger today than they were back in 2008 when they were too big to fail. So there's always these unintended consequences with regulations, and you know you, you don't know you don't know how it's gonna how it's gonna turn out. Consider also that Barney Frank, ended up joining the board of a small bank called Signature Bank, where he spent eight years, had over $2 million in compensation, and he pushed to ease regulations for smaller banks. And when those regulations were eased up, when the requirements were raised from, uh, like, I think it was $50 billion to $150 billion in assets, Signature Bank dove in and took on more risk and ended up going belly up. So, what are the incentives for government regulators? How are they going to write things in a way that we can believe that there won't be unintended consequences that actually have the reverse effect of what they stated up front? Uh, I think that's about it. I think that's I think eight and a half minutes is enough time for me to you know share my thoughts. As you can tell, I did read this whole book. I was engaged with it, and I think it's an important topic, but I think we got to come at it from all sides. And not just say, hey, well, the, the solution is regulation. I think the solution is the one we're in control of anyway is by taking control of who we are, who we want to be, choosing our habits, our spending habits, so that the future, those habits pretend for us is one that we want to live. All right, that's it for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for staying tuned in all the way to the end. we got more good stuff coming up next week. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.